and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 92, Steadily Climbing Towards 100. I'm going to have something special on episode 100, uh, something I think that uh, maybe some people will like, maybe some people will not like, but we're going to try something new because, you know, it's a little milestone and uh, why not give myself a gold star for effort? Uh, so with that, I want to make my usual pitch for Counterpunch. I, um, you know, I, I, I do feel honored and proud to work with Counterpunch. It's a, it's an outlet, a media platform that I've followed for a lot of years, really almost going back to the days when it first came online or thereabouts. And, um, you know, it's, I think, critical in these times to support uh, media outlets like Counterpunch that provide us with critical perspectives, particularly on those issues that the corporate media, the mainstream media, the Western media, the global North media, the bourgeois media, the capitalist media, whatever the heck you want to call it, they are censoring, they are misrepresenting, they are lying, lying as imperialists tend to do. And so we need people like uh, Counterpunch, or uh, I should say publications like Counterpunch, to give us that critical analysis. And even some on the left, sad to say, have, uh, I think, bought into some corporate propaganda. But I think Counterpunch does stand apart. And in many ways, uh, it really is unique. And so if you agree, I would highly recommend you get a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great, great publication, one of the few remaining print publications worth your time. Uh, it's also a good way of supporting Counterpunch as a project. And so uh, you can go ahead and uh, purchase a, a subscription through the website. You can uh, pick up the phone and call Becky at the Counterpunch office in California. You can uh, find many different ways of getting in touch with the Counterpunch people and finding ways to support it. So uh, I do hope that you'll at least consider that. Uh, with that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest this week and to talk about an issue that is of such critical importance right now in this historical moment. Uh, we've talked a number of times about Venezuela, about the ongoing situation in Venezuela, but it is it does seem to be coming to a, a, a critical mass in some ways, and so I'm very happy to be able to welcome uh, Dr. Francisco Dominguez to the podcast. Uh, uh, Francisco is a, a professor of Latin American Studies at Middlesex University in London. He is also the National Secretary for the Venezuela Solid Solidarity Campaign. Follow their work and uh, their material on the website, venezuelasolidarity.co.uk. That's www.venezuelasolidarity.co.uk. Francisco, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show to talk about Venezuela in this particular moment, because, you know, it's something we've all, obviously, all of us on the left have been talking about for a lot of years, going back to the rise of Chavez in the late 1990s, and of course, the transformation, the Bolivarian process, but it does seem that we are at a very critical moment, one, perhaps one could say, at an existential crisis moment in Venezuela. Can you start out our conversation by just explaining to some of our listeners, well, A, whether you agree that we're really in an existential crisis moment and what that actually looks like. Why are we at such a crisis right now? Yeah, I think the threats against the Bolivarian revolution are absolutely gigantic right now. Um, it's never been like this before, although the revolution has been under siege and under attack anyway since 1999 when it began. Uh, but I think what happened now is this. When Hugo Chavez died prematurely on the 5th of March 2013, 
U.S. imperialism and the right wing internationally and also the right wing in Venezuela came to the conclusion, which they persuaded themselves of, that this was a one-man revolution and therefore once Chavez died, it would be easy to push it out of existence. And they immediately turned a nasty uh, economic war against it, which has been going on ever since, which is reminiscent of the economic war they launched against Salvador Allende back in the 1970s in Chile with very well-known horrible results. They, this paid off in a way because the consequences on the people, the hoarding of basic necessities, the hoarding of food items, forcing people to go up and so on, in other words, punishing the people as much as possible for having elected these governments, um, they uh, won the national election. Uh, for the, the elections for the National Assembly in 2015. In that, say, in that sense, it worked. Throughout 2016, the majority, the right-wing majority in the National Assembly tried everything in their power, legal, illegal, criminal, or otherwise, to oust the government of Maduro. And because of the existing constitution, which they couldn't really get rid of, they failed miserably. By 2017, they realized that their strategy domestically was not working, so they turned towards the organization of American states in order to justify an external sanction that will legitimize not only internal subversion, but also external intervention, particularly by the United States, ideally from their point of view, with the military dimension. They tried everything, Luis Almagro tried absolutely everything in his power, calling the permanent council of the Organization of American States to meet in literally every 48 hours, again and again and again. And they failed miserably again because they couldn't get enough sufficient support in the region in order to do what they wanted to, which to apply the democratic charter, suspend Venezuela from the organization, create the conditions for their meddling into the internal affairs of Venezuela, and bring the United States in. That failed. Because many countries in the region were reluctant to go for that option, even though many of them don't like what they see in the Bolivarian Revolution because it's too radical for them, they were not prepared all the way. So they tried, they launched a wave of violence in order to persuade them that this was, you know, there were sufficient grounds for them to support this. And this is what we are facing now. 90, nearly 100 days of horrible violence, trying to oust the government, using every imaginable terrorist tactic, which we can talk about in a second. And this failed again. And therefore, the United States, Rex Tillerson, decided to go to the European Union to try to persuade the European Union to apply sanctions jointly with the United States against Venezuela. This also failed miserably, and the latest effort, which was literally two days ago, one day ago, they tried to get Mercosur, the common market of the South countries, which are basically dominated by the extreme right wing, you know, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and they failed again to actually apply sanctions from it. So now they are stuck, and what happens then? The United States, Donald Trump, decided that the masks were off, and he said he was going to, the United States was going to apply sanctions to Venezuela in order to try to resolve the problem by telling the Venezuelans how to vote, who to vote for, and which institution they should elect, which is completely ridiculous and totally unacceptable. And this is what we're facing, and the Venezuelan revolution is fighting for its life.
I think that that's absolutely correct. Now, uh, one one point that I want to kind of put out, uh, you know, up front because I think it's important is the fact that all throughout the previous eight years, the Obama administration was absolutely belligerent towards Venezuela, including calling Venezuela a national security threat. Of course, totally absurd from the U.S. perspective. Uh, of course, uh, funding various uh, paramilitary organizations and all forms of destabilization. However, all of that said, it does seem that with the Donald Trump administration coming in, all of these tactics have been multiplied exponentially. The pressure has been added and increased against the Bolivarian revolution. And so I want to ask two questions. Number one, do you agree that the Trump administration is even more belligerent towards Venezuela? And number two, how much of that is related to Rex Tillerson and ExxonMobil and their long-standing feud with Hugo Chavez and the socialist government in Venezuela, which refused to allow ExxonMobil to dominate the oil industry in that country. So the question really is, how much of the current situation that we're seeing is related to the previous 15 years? Well, it is related in the sense that they all, they've been trying, the United States, you know, using every mechanism, using, uh, channeling huge amounts of money to the National Endowment for Democracy, to opposition groups in Venezuela of every kind, political parties, so-called NGOs, um, media outfits, television channels, politicians, and so on, to the tune of between 2002 and 2013, to the tune of £120 million pounds which to the scale of the United Kingdom, this is something like one billion dollars, or one, sorry, one billion pounds, that a foreign hostile power is given to subversive groups domestically in order to oust and destroy the democracy of the country. This is what we're talking about. So it was horrible before, and it's still horrible. I think what is going on now is this. Whatever Mr. Trump may think about Venezuela, I'm not sure he knows too much about it. I think at the moment, because he's in real trouble domestically, for all sorts of internal domestic reasons, he has decided to actually capitulate to the pressure of the extreme right wing in Florida, the Miami Cuban American mafia. And as a result of that, he is prepared to concede even undoing some of the some of the positive, you know, not completely good, but some of the positive work that Obama did regarding normalizing relations with Cuba. And now he has decided to do exactly the same with Venezuela. We have to wait and see. You know, he's made very threatening statements. We have to wait and see what, what he does rather than what he says he's going to do. He says he's threatening Venezuela if they continue and go ahead with the Constituent Assembly this uh, next week. And he says he's going to take also to measures. So far, he hasn't clarified exactly what it is. Um, it seems to me, in that sense, um, the foreign policy of the administration towards Venezuela, towards Cuba, and certainly towards Latin America, has been, you know, given over to the worst possible elements of the extreme right wing of the Republican Party, particularly in Florida. Regarding the overall strategic reason as to why the United States has been doing this in 1999 and is intensifying it now, is because Rex Tillerson is extremely central to the whole strategy of the United States to try to ask the Bolivarian government ever since came to office in 1999, which yes. is called oil. Yep. There's no other reason, really. And the reason is this. Venezuela has the largest deposits of oil certified in the planet. 
at the current level of consumption in the world, Venezuela has oil for the next 300 years. And even more important than that is good oil, good quality oil, and it's about five days away from the United States. That is to say, the moment you ship oil to the United States from Venezuela, it takes about four to five days to reach Texas. Whereas the oil that is coming from the Middle East takes in the region of 30 to 48 days. You can imagine from the strategic point of view how important it is, how significant it is for the United States. been trying desperately, and that's why Rex Tillerson has done everything he's in power, including, you know, personally talking to the foreign minister of Spain, Dastiz, about five, six days ago to try to persuade him to initiate, you know, a process in the European Union to persuade the European Union to apply sanctions to Venezuela. And interestingly, they have their own contradictions. As this told him, no way, Jose, as we say over here. Indeed. Now, there's two aspects to this oil question that I think are uh, interesting to examine. Number one is, of course, the uh, 2014 collapse of global oil prices, which obviously really rocked uh, Venezuela's economic situation, uh, of course, above and beyond just uh, the various other forms of economic subversion. The collapse of oil prices hit Venezuela very hard. At the same time, the collapse of oil prices also made things like like uh, hydraulic fracturing or fracking and various other domestic energy production uh, industries in the United States less profitable. So it's almost kind of a paradoxical situation vis-a-vis Venezuela. On the one hand, Venezuela is hurt, obviously, by the collapse of global oil prices. On the other hand, the United States remains more dependent on Venezuelan oil because U.S. energy production is now less profitable. So Venezuela finds itself sort of in this double-targeted frame. No, absolutely. This is absolutely right. I think fracking has become a boomerang because it's hitting the United States quite badly. Exactly. Uh, One thing is to go for fracking and the level of investment. I mean, you get oil very quickly, but the level of investment for every single uh, drill that you do or drilling that you do is extremely expensive and you cannot extract more oil from that particular position different from, you know, the oil that you extract from uh, a deposit where you can establish your operation and you can stay there for about 20 years. In this case, it's about a few months maybe, and then you have to move on to do it somewhere else in order to get more oil. And therefore, the, the organic composition of capital, to use uh, a more traditional terminology, increases dramatically, thereby declining the rate of profit quite dramatically. And many other you know, uh, oil companies in the United States, not the big ones, but certainly medium-sized ones and smaller ones, are suffering the consequences. They are, going to, they are beginning to go bankrupt. So this is not working. And therefore, what, what it is, is that it's not sustainable. As a result of the, the United States embarking itself on the adventure of fracking, I would say, not only is undermining its own internal environment quite badly, you know, this is going to hit them back very badly later on when they see the consequences, but now Venezuela is more important than that. So therefore, as a result of the stupid actions of the United States, very short-sighted, uh, and imperialist ones, Venezuela now has become more under attack, not because of what they're doing, but because of the fault of the United States, which is completely not only unfair, but, you know, ridiculous. 
Absolutely. And in fact, uh, regional conflicts developing out of uh, a lot of this sort of calculus, for instance, uh, the United States and particularly ExxonMobil has been, you know, kind of sort of covertly backing the government of Guyana, which has an ongoing uh, territorial waters dispute with Venezuela going back 100 years. But it's now at the forefront because it is now understood to be a massive deposit of oil and gas under the water outside of Venezuela and Guyana's territorial boundaries. And so, again, we see a government in Guyana directly backed by ExxonMobil and the United States essentially saber-rattling against Venezuela, Venezuela doing the same back, creating regional conflicts, creating conflicts in the Organization of American States, in Mercosur, border conflicts. This is the type of chaos strategy that the United States seems to be employing in Latin America, the quote-unquote traditional backyard of the of the empire yeah it's not only it doesn't only seem to be applying it is applying them yes however this is not working i think the reason is this throughout the period of you know the offensive from the organization american states which was not really the organization american state making decisions it was just luis almagro the general secretary you know campaigning to get meeting after meeting after meeting and the media reporting this as if it was the organization american states doing it. It wasn't. The Organization of American States took only one decision regarding Venezuela, which was on the 2nd of April, where it says, you know, they are concerned about this and the other and so on, violence, polarization, blah, blah, blah. But it should end, you know, the last uh, paragraph of of the resolution says very clearly that they expect that the parties involved in this polarization should come to talk to each other and resolve the problems, you know, legally, uh, diplomatically, as well as democratically, without the use of force and so on. That's what the Organization of American State has done ever since. Everything else is is Luis Almagro and the media actually presented this. But interestingly, throughout the period, the reason why this failed, because there was the you know, right-wing Golpista government in, in, in Brazil, there was the right-wing government in, in Argentina, and the right-wing government in Paraguay, particularly a few others, Colombia and Mexico involved in this, supporting Almagro to try to sanction Venezuela. The wall of contention, the reason why they couldn't get the votes was because the Caribbean decided to vote as a unity. And they became a wall of contention. We are talking about 13, 14 votes within the organization. And in order to get the sanctions against Venezuela, the organization of American state needed 24 votes, which it never got. And these involved even Guyana. And the reason is this. The small English and French Caribbean nations came to the conclusion, if they get away with this in Venezuela, can you imagine? our vulnerability will be absolutely massively intensified and we will not be able to survive. And they began to have a taste of this because similar violent actions to undermine and destabilize the government began to be implemented and carried out and perpetrated in the small island of Dominica, who actually immediately denounced the matter. So I think now there is a very strong consciousness in the Caribbean to say, look, you, the United States, may want to go for war, and you may want us to break with Venezuela, you know, especially with the Petro-Caribe uh, initiative from which we benefit massively. But we're not going to because we're not going to allow you to do this, because if you did, then we will be in trouble and we will be next. 
Indeed. And in fact, that Petro Caribe program, which Chavez introduced, which essentially sold Venezuelan oil at below market prices, well below market prices to uh, the countries of the Caribbean, that in addition to the establishment of, of uh, CELAC, C-E-L-A-C, the uh, organization of Latin American and also Caribbean states that Hugo Chavez was instrumental in bringing forward this sort of unity or at least a movement towards unity within the Caribbean space was initiated by Venezuela and to some degree at least still has that goodwill, even though Petro Caribe is now much less viable than it was when oil prices were very high and Venezuela is in a much more vulnerable position than it was uh, 10 years ago. Well, yes, but in 2008, the price of the barrel of oil in the world market was $148. And with fracking and the economic war against Venezuela, you know, two, three years ago, it went down dramatically to something like $20 the barrel. As a result of that, Venezuela lost between 80, lost between 80, 85% of its export revenues. Yes. And Venezuela exports almost nothing else but oil. The consequences were absolutely terrible. Not that the economy was on the verge of collapse, but it created such a bottleneck economically that it made the situation very difficult to carry on. However, Venezuela was able to obtain loans from elsewhere outside the area of influence of the United States, which actually helped enormously. But now the price of oil actually has gone up to something like 45, between 35 to 48 dollars. It varies depending on which one of the uh, calculations you take into account. That is to say, it's recovered more than 100% of the original, the worst moment of the price, which actually makes sure that the Venezuelan economy actually is not in such a bad shape. And I think because of the crisis of fracking, which is beginning to build up, you know, Saudi Arabia is in deep trouble, precisely because of the collapse in the price of oil. It's already loaning money, sort of borrowing money from elsewhere and beginning to privatize their own state oil operations. It's an indication of the problem. So the recovery is, is very is there, and it's going to take some time before it recovers completely, and the price of oil reaches something like 60 to 70, which is reasonable, and is what the world market ought to be. However, more important than that seems to me, Venezuela actually depends something like, at the moment, the national budget is funded by about 30% from the oil revenues, which is very low. Most of the monies and most of the resources come from somewhere else. And the price of oil is calculated something like 30 to $35 the barrel. So Venezuela has taken all the provisions to make sure that whatever dramatic fluctuations in the price of oil takes place, his economy is in a position to resist and is resisted despite the problems and despite the difficulties pretty well. Now, one of the other problems, though, of course, is not simply the price of oil. It's also access to dollars because of the nature of the global economy and because of the, the nature of the petrodollar system in selling oil on the international market and particularly in settling international debts. Venezuela has found itself in need of foreign currency, something that has been increasingly difficult to obtain, thereby making a lot of the uh, international commerce more difficult. Can you speak a little bit to this question? question of, uh, of liquidity in terms of uh, foreign currencies and how that's impacting Venezuela and what the reasons for that shortage might be. Yeah, there is a, a quite intense and very well organized a financial blockade organized by the United States against Venezuela. 
but is informal. That is to say, unlike in the case of Cuba, is not declared, but it is as intense. However, Venezuela for some years has been outside the sphere of influence of that particular economic area. The IMF has zero influence in Venezuela. The World Bank has zero influence in Venezuela. Venezuela would like to do business with some banks. It's done some with Goldman Sachs and so on, which has been you know, heavily criticized. So it's got some possibilities. Um, some of the private banks are buying some of the Venezuelan bonds, which is a way of getting debt, you know, getting borrowing money. Um, the indication that actually they, the banks, do not think that Venezuela is going to collapse anytime soon. But more important, it seems to me, these things are small compared to what Venezuela needs. Venezuela has been borrowing money mainly from China. These are soft loans. This is in the region of something like $50 billion, which has been you know, quite substantial regarding what Venezuela requires. These are soft loans because Venezuela pays China with oil. And in that sense, Venezuela doesn't have to export anything in order to obtain the hard currency with which to pay, you know, this debt. So it's different from your traditional situation. More important than that, it seems to me, is that you have to look at the size of the external debt or the size of the debt in Venezuela in relationship to each gross domestic product. It's something like 42.7%. In the UK, the external debt of the UK is in the region of 100%. Uh, Spain is about 98%. The United States is about 110%, one of the worst in the world. Uh, Portugal is about 130%. Um, Ireland is about 140%. Uh, Greece is about 177%. And the worst of them all is Japan, which is 265%. So, if the European countries and the countries I mentioned that have a huge debt compared in terms of the ratio towards to its GDP, do not collapse. Venezuela, which is already obtaining loans and which is already sorting out some of the worst aspects of its economic problems, and has a debt which is only 42% of its GDP, there is nothing to indicate that the situation is too bad and Venezuela will find alternative sources of financing. I think we'll 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 return to that question because it'll relate to some of the other things I want to discuss. But just as a follow up on that, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, propaganda efforts that are centered in Miami and in the United States generally uh, to propagandize the international media about inflation in Venezuela? We know that we can actually point to very specific actors and very specific websites that are uh, picked up by the corporate media as if they're telling the truth about Venezuela's real inflation. Can you talk a little bit about this problem of inflation and how it is, pardon the pun, overinflated in the Western media? Uh, there is real inflation in Venezuela. I mean, you know, it's quite high and is, is a result of the economic war. No doubt. If you, um, which they did in Chile, if you hold basic necessities and then you have them and then you deploy them in the black market and sell them at whatever price you want, you know, by locating them in the black market bit by bit, by not flooding the black market with it, by just drip, drip, drip kind of a strategy, you can charge any price you want. So there is, there is no question about it. That is fueling inflation. People will pay anything in order to feed their children. You know, you can imagine that that's the case. Number one. Number two, 
there is a huge amount of contraband, which is part of the economic war between prices in Venezuela, you know, prices of goods in Venezuela, which are heavily subsidized, um, to Colombia, which prices are not subsidized at all. And the, the ratio, the difference between prices of the same goods in Venezuela compared to Colombia is sometimes is in the region of 1 to 50, 1 to 100. So the minister, I think, in charge a couple of years ago, you know, indicated that all of the food, particularly imported and or produced in Venezuela, something like 30 to 35 percent of which actually went into Colombia's contraband. Now this has been remedied quite dramatically, but still there is a problem. If to this you add the massive collapse in the price of oil, you have a triple whammy there, which is extremely difficult. And then there is this massive, I mean, I've never seen such an intoxicating level of media demonization and media attack on one single government in for as long as I remember. And these organizations called Dollar Today, what they do is that they publicize, you know, the price of the dollar according to whatever they want. It has no bearing whatsoever with any economic uh, theory or any economic mechanism that you want to use. And they inflate and inflate on So on the basis of the existing psychological situation as a result of the shortages that are being created in Venezuela, it is quite easy if you have a sufficiently powerful media machinery to create the impression that the level of inflation can be, you know, whatever you want. Right. From 200% to 800% to 2,000%, whatever it is. However, this has been declining because the significance in terms of the media demonization and the media uh, attacks on Venezuela, dollar today, this website has more or less disappeared. Yeah, uh, dollar today and a, a few others as well is is really what I'm referring to here because it's almost a self you know self fulfilling prophecy, right? If you want to if you want to harm the Venezuelan government, if you want to harm uh, Venezuela from the United States, you release uh, you know information saying that inflation is really X when in fact it's Y. Thereby, when you say it's X, people believe it's X. People want to you know make economic uh, transactions in order to take advantage of the rate at that moment, thereby creating more inflation. So it's a multiplier effect, a way of continuing to undermine the economy without having to do anything other than controlling a couple of websites. Absolutely. I mean, the, the number of bureaus of exchange that have been reported that they were on the other side of Venezuela, you know, on the border with Colombia, in a place called Cúcuta, the number of bureaus of exchange was actually 3,000. 3,000 Board of Exchange, that is to say this is a colossal operation, obviously organized by somebody who has the capacity to organize such a colossal operation, namely the United States. And incredibly, the distortion was such that the price of the dollar in Cúcuta was different from the price of the dollar in Bogota in the same country. That's an indication of how these, you know, terrible, malicious, nasty operation actually having its effects. And when you when you work on people's expectations, particularly in the context of, you know, the situation of shortage that you correctly mentioned, then it's quite easy to actually create an expectation when provided that you publicize it, you know, sufficiently enough. 
That's right. And it also, you know, the, the picture that you're painting there also leads us to really once again raise the issue of uh, the paramilitaries and organized crime networks that are associated with former president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe, his criminal organization, and their very, very, very close ties to the establishment of both the Republican and Democratic parties in the United States, namely the Clintons of the Democratic Party, uh, the Bushes from the Republican Party and, and, and so forth. And so uh, we do also have to ask the question, how much of the destabilization and subversion of Venezuela is not just indirectly being created by the United States, but is literally being directed by a U.S. proxy in Colombia, namely Uribe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you are referring to number 82, right? Yeah, indeed. You know, he appeared as a number 82 exactly. of the uh, drug traffickers in the Drug Enforcement Administration list and also in the CIA. Um, and, you know, everybody knows. And his connections with paramilitaries are absolutely legendary, to put it with the vertigomas. Uh, but he is responsible, if one were to trace the trail of blood, you know, normally it gets to him, uh, thousands and thousands. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of people have been assassinated uh, terribly uh, with the terrible levels of violence by... Uh, extrajudicial killings, which is, you know, through these paramilitaries. So one day, what the right wing in Venezuela did was make a deal with him. And the deal was, well, you fund us and you support us. We will start colonizing barrios, you know, shanty towns and areas, popular areas in Venezuela, particularly in Caracas, so that we can organize, we can link up with local crime and use it for political purposes to uh, um, perpetrate violence. And this is what is going on. It's been going on for some time. This was quite apparent in 2014. It's not so apparent today, but there's no question about it that Mr. Uribe not only opposes the peace process in Colombia, he wants war, not only he's one of the key, who has been one of the key instruments of the worst elements of this, you know, political establishment of the United States, but it's also quite central to the whole operation against Venezuela. There is a sort of triangle yes. which is based in Miami, Madrid, and Bogota. And in Madrid is the popular party um, that at the moment is ruling uh, Spain, which is central to everything that is being done against Venezuela. Absolutely right. And uh, again, I mean, we could probably spend a whole show just talking about this angle, but let's not forget that uh, Alvaro Uribe and his criminal networks are not only enriched through their uh, direct cr uh, criminal operations, drug trafficking, and so forth. These are also major beneficiaries of billions of dollars under the so-called Plan Colombia, which the United States has been funneling into that country, now going back to the Clinton administration, ostensibly in the uh, so-called war on drugs. So, in fact, what you see is that uh, we have an individual who is central to the destabilization of Venezuela, who is both benefiting from the war on drugs and benefiting from the trafficking of drugs and weapons and mercenaries and oil and contraband and all of the other things. And so, this is not some, you know, uh, amorphous and shadowy conspiracy the contours of which we can't discern. This is something very clear, very obvious, with individuals that we could name and point to directly. Yeah, there is a refutable evidence. There is no question about it. Um, you know, all the reports, all the indications, up to everything, and, and the Venezuelan um, right wing, who are not very intelligent, are a bit brutish. They keep saying, they keep boasting about these links, 
uh, Leopoldo Lopez for one, you know, just went to Colombia when he was a presidential candidate, a prospective presidential candidate, to just photograph himself with Alvaro Uribe to indicate, you know, I'm going to bring, he said he was going to, went to Bogota to talk to Alvaro Uribe in order to get wisdom regarding Uribe's security policies as he applied them to Colombia so he could bring that into Venezuela. Now you can imagine that terrified, you know, millions of people in, in Venezuela. So they, there is total indication, every indication, including a number of selective killings yes. that the uh, right wing carried out recently, uh, namely, notably, uh, Robert Serra, you know, one of the youngest uh, socialist MPs in Parliament was assassinated by, you know, Colombian paramilitary style. And, 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 and there's uh, no question about it that they did. And I will just tell you, listeners, when I was in uh, when I was in those working class neighborhoods, uh, you, you know, like the 21st of January and such, you know, you, you walk through those neighborhoods, you see murals of Robert Serra. This is somebody who was an up and coming leader of the Chavista movement, someone who was seen as, quote unquote, the next Hugo Chavez to the degree that something like that's even possible. And, uh, you know, his assassination, which has been directly connected and directly linked to the bodyguard of Alvaro Uribe and potentially a murder for higher ring that Uribe was running, this targeted assassination conspiracy. This is also likely linked to the assassination of a very prominent Chavista journalist, Ricardo Duran, and a bunch of others as well, including Haitian activists and, and Afro-Venezuelan activists, indigenous rights activists, and many others. And so this problem that we're talking about is 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 not simply uh, an attack against uh, you know the, the Socialist Party. This is an attack against the entire Bolivarian revolution, the entire Bolivarian process, including the, uh, you know, the foundational elements of grassroots democracy in Venezuela. Sure. No, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's, it's just that the Venezuelan, you know, Venezuelan state is sufficiently improved all aspects of its security. And I think is although there is still the right way able to perpetrate some terrible things, uh, regarding all of those aspects, they've been quite much better controlled in the last period than they were before. Indeed. Okay, so we're going to take a break, and uh, we kind of flipped the script here because I wanted to talk more about the protests and the and the protest movement and the propaganda around that, and then talk strategic stuff. But we put strategic stuff in the first half. So come back on the other side of the break. We have a lot more to discuss, including what's going on on the streets in Venezuela right now. I'm chatting here with Francisco Dominguez. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. <laughs> Y a partir de este momento es prohibido llorarlos. Compañero Hugo Chávez, presente. La revolución bolivariana, presente. Let's go. Yo en Caracas, el proceso va para adelante. En el Chicago, el proceso va para adelante. Yo en el South Bronx, el proceso va para adelante. It goes worldwide. I can't front, I'm upset that they took our building Next thing, the commandante, man, I know they killed him Something going on, I gotta read the signs Something telling me that it's about that time 
Time to step it up, cause I still smell sulfur. Still smell the money in this capitalist culture. I'm dedicating verses to my boy Jamil. He out there in Venezuela, front line is real. Hunts Point, New York, 2005. That's when I realized the revolution's so alive. We ain't never had a president come around mine. He brought oil for the poor in the wintertime. He showed love to the Bronx, that's called solidarity. We show love back, ain't no politician scaring me. Anti-imperialist, till I go delirious. The work is getting serious, that's why they keep fearing us. Do the mathematics, who go Chavez, who's the baddest? I gotta work like Chavez. Do the mathematics, who go Chavez, who's the baddest? I gotta work like Chavez. Yo, in Caracas, and in Chicago, yo, in the South Bronx, and goes worldwide. Forward, this movement ain't defeated. La lucha sigue. Dentro de todo, esa rebeldía existe. La CIA comete crimen. Igual las ideas viven. Aquí el pueblo decide. No lo que los medios dicen. Quieren parar una cultura alternativa. Fíjate desde el Bronx hasta América Latina. Capitalistas van, capitalistas vienen. Buscan tus bienes. Quieren hacer lo que quieren. Ahora decimos no. No al imperialismo. Neoliberalismo. Los bancos, los ricos. Ni un millonario. Chávez fue solidario. Ni Bush ni Obama llegaron a ayudarnos, no lo olvidamos más que venezolano, esto cruza frontera, hijo bolivariano, América Unida, como creamos este frente, solidaridad por todo el continente. Do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest, I gotta work like Chavez, do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest, I gotta work like Chavez, yo en Caracas, and in Chicago, yo in the South Bronx, and we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Francisco Dominguez. Go to the website. Please follow all of the material that's there. It's very important. VenezuelaSolidarity.co.uk That's www.VenezuelaSolidarity.co.uk um, Okay, Francisco, I want to focus, if we could now, on the protests themselves, because this is really the pretext, the justification for a lot of the policies that we were talking about in the first half of of the program. A lot of the strategic posture from the United States is predicated on this idea of human rights violations, violence by the government against peaceful protesters, and all of the typical rhetoric that you hear from the imperialist media. So tell us a little bit about some of the, let's call it uh, truths, unspoken about what's really happening on the streets in Venezuela. How popular of a mobilization is this really, and what are the class dynamics at work on the streets of Venezuela? Sure. Um, when they launched this offensive, uh, something like three and a bit months ago, um, they used the usual tactic, which is Waringo, which is violent the street blockades and barricades, plus, you know, mask uh, armed uh, thugs organized and paid by Venezuelan's right wing, go on the rampage attacking this and the other. And the key to this is two things. Number one, there are no masses in the streets whenever they organize one of these so-called protests. Some of them are more numerous than others in the sense that, you know, you get, in some of them you get 50. In some of them you may get 400. Occasionally the opposition is able to mobilize 5,000 compared to the mobilization of the Chavista side, which is, you know, hundreds of thousands and tens of thousands normally. These are very small. 
but they are extremely violent. And more important than that, they, they are absolutely magnified, out of proportion, literally daily, by the international media. I've done this myself. You go and look at what the Washington Post says, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, literally the whole spectrum of the United States. Then you move towards the right-wing media in Latin America, and the right-wing media, or the media in general, because it's all more or less right-wing in Europe. Um, you know, you, you just get an article, and then you look for keywords in the article, and then you put it on, the, on Google, and then you find some newspaper in Nepal, some newspaper in India, some newspaper in the most extraordinary places on earth, repeating exactly the same. And the originator of this is the U.S. State Department, which channels these things mainly, not exclusively, through Reuters. Reuters is the one that gives the line. If you read Reuters, you know what U.S. imperialism is going to do next regarding Venezuela. That would be my advice to anybody who wants to really know what is going on. And in, here the case is taken, the case of the opposition, the case of the overthrowing of, of Nicolas Maduro in this you know, offensive, this current offensive, is taken mainly by the BBC, which is absolutely extraordinary horrible regarding Venezuela, totally biased. I mean, they, they they have no even the pretense that they're doing journalism. They're just doing propaganda. And the other one is The Guardian, which is a newspaper that used to be on the left, but now is completely on the other side. <coughs> they Not only they publicize the opposition with a positive light, they glorify it. They have written several articles where they glorify what the opposition does. The important thing is this. When you look at it from a more panoramic view, the amount, the number of municipalities that actually you get protests in within Venezuela is about five. If you are generous, you could say 10. There are 335 municipalities in Venezuela, and these protests mainly, literally every single day when they take place, concentrate only on about three to four you know, municipalities, not even in the whole municipality, in sections of these municipalities, in the east of Caracas, which is the world of districts. And this over here, everywhere in the world, is presented as if the whole Venezuela is in flames. And this is an indication of their desperation. This is a clear, um, is a fraud which is being inflicted on the world public opinion, who has no means to know you know, how to check these things. And this is also an indication of the, the Venezuelan opposition, which is mainly very violent, extremely dangerous, because it's got powerful allies internationally. It can do a lot of damage, but it has no serious, substantial political support, because the support they obtained in 2015, when they won the National Assembly, I think they completely wasted it. And now they're extremely unpopular. If you were to look at some of the polls from interlaces, including from data analysis. Interlaces is sort of progressive, you know, poster. Uh, data analysis is right-wing. The level of rejection of the violence perpetrated and carried out by the Venezuelan opposition is in the region of 85 to 90%. The proportion of people in both uh, posters that wants a dialogue and want the violence to stop is also in the region of 80 to 85%. 
And the number of people who actually want to change the government right now is in the region of 30%. And those who want to continue with what they have is about 69 to 70% in these two posters. So it's totally clear that the opposition is isolated itself and decided that the only strategy that they can go for is for this fake, inflated, massive so-called insurrection, which is not existing, but causing a lot of violence and producing a lot of corpses in order to justify it. And the media will do the rest of it, and hoping that the United States at some point is going to be in a position to actually intervene in Venezuela. And a clear indication of the fraud is the plebiscite that they organized recently. Uh, tell us about the plebiscite, because I think this is something that people may have missed um, because of everything else that's happening and the hysteria around Trump and Russia and a number of other issues. So what is the plebiscite that just happened and why is this uh, why is this, well, a fraud? Well, I talk about the uh, National Assembly, the, the, the National Constitution. Oh, oh, oh excuse me. Let me go for this first. Yeah. The, the, the reason why the National Constitution Assembly is something that Maduro has called in order to empower the people yes. and to actually rewrite aspects of the constitution by, a constitution by strengthening it in order to make sure that you know the violence stops and they're able and they have the constitutional, legitimate, and legal mechanisms to be able to deal with number one the violence, number two the economic war, and you know start from there. In response to this, which is a serious democratic challenge by Maduro to the opposition, which is only using violence and fake news more or less, then they decided that rather than participate in the National Constituent Assembly elections and process. They decided to have their own process. First of all, they rejected the Constitutional Assembly, something that they call, you know, intensely and regularly not long ago. All of them, no exception. Julio Borges, Freddy Guevara, all the Capriles, Maria Corina Machado, all of them actually call for a Constitutional Assembly. And the reason is the Constitutional Assembly allows you to rewrite everything, to start from zero if you want. So if you have a majority of the population on your side, say, this were to be the case of the opposition. They could have gone for the uh, Constituent Assembly, win all the elections by that proportion that they claim to have, and then they could have rewrite, rewrote, rewritten the whole Constitution, and you know they will be the government now. More interestingly than that, <clears throat> they claim constantly, and this is repeated ad nauseum by all the media in the world, that Chavismo now is reducing something like 10 to 20 percent at best. So the opposition by default, has 80 to 90 percent of support. If that were the case, why did they reject participating in constituent assembly, which would be like, you know, a gift from their point of view. All they needed to do was to participate in the constituent assembly process, elect as many candidates with their support as they could, and then they would have won, hands down, and so on. They just had to organize a place beside, and they needed to show to the world that actually they have sufficient support. Number one, their claim that 7 million people plus voted in their plebiscite hasn't got mathematical logic to it. They organized something like 2,000 centers of polling centers. This is what they claim. There is no way to verify that all these 2,000 centers actually were operational on the day 16th of July. That's number one. Number two, there was no electoral registry to anyone, anybody who wanted to vote. And there was no possibility of checking when somebody voted once or twice or three times. In fact, 
There is irrefutable video evidence that some people voted five times, some people voted 10 times. There is a case of somebody who actually managed to vote 17 times. There was no checking whatsoever. There were three questions in, in the uh, plebiscite. One of them was, you know, would you like to call on the armed forces to do something about the government of Maduro? In other words, calling openly for the population to support a military coup d'etat, which is absolutely disgusting, is illegal, and is criminal. If anybody, any other political party, anywhere in the world, were to organize something like that, which is not in the Constitution, which was done illegally, Possibly, and very likely, they will be in prison. If you were to do that in the United States, you can imagine what will happen to you. It's called the claim, the claim of 7 million is absolutely fake. If you were to calculate that every single voter takes one minute generously, and it doesn't, it normally takes longer, especially if you don't have, you know, electoral registry. If it takes only one minute and you say you accept that, then in one hour, you can actually process 720 voters in a shift of 12 hours, and there is no way to verify that all their centers actually were open 12 hours. There's no way to verify because there is no information. There's nothing at all. Then the number of people you can do per, per day per shift is 720. If you were generous and say, okay, let's imagine that they were able to actually process twice that. Even if you do the calculation, give, being generous by one minute per person and giving them the number, double the number of desks to process them, you come to the general figure of something like four million votes. So there is no way, absolutely no way, and worse than that, they say they were going to audit the process. They haven't, quite frankly, what they've done. Actually, once the process was over, they decided to burn absolutely all the electoral material. So there is no way to verify it. And even more important than that, even if it is 7 million, which is not by any stretch of the imagination, it's not true as the media keeps claiming literally every single hour of the day that this is the majority. The number of registered voters in Venezuela is 20 million. So 7 million is about 37%. So it's not true. Even accepting that, which is obviously not real, um, they're a majority at all. I want to talk a little bit, if we could, about the political capital that, as you said earlier, you believe that the right wing really squandered in the post-December 2015 uh, political landscape. Remember, in December of 2015, there were parliamentary elections, and those elections were the first victory for the right wing in Venezuela since uh, 1998 and the uh, ascendance of Hugo Chavez in the beginning of, uh, I guess, what we, what we would call the Bolivarian Revolution. And so this was a momentous and uh, quite ominous moment for the left in Venezuela. And uh, I, w I happened to be in Venezuela at the time as part of a delegation that was there to, uh, well, not formally observe, but to at least be there uh, to document what was happening. And one of the things that I found was that there were a lot of common people, a lot of regular people, not all poor, some middle class, some working class cab drivers and artists and radio station engineers and various types of people who were 
Chavista 15 years earlier, who had become disillusioned, who had become regretful, who had become depressed about the situation, and who were willing to basically cast what they deemed to be a protest vote against uh, the, the Socialist Party and Nicolas Maduro by voting for the, uh, for the right wing, the so-called MUD, or the Unity Roundtable in Venezuela at the time. And so you had a lot of people who did cast votes for the right wing and who even talked about it openly with me and with others who I think today are perhaps regretful about that fact that what they were voting for was essentially a repudiation of the policies of Maduro up to that point. And what they've gotten instead is a borderline fascist right wing that has done anything it can to destabilize the country and thereby deteriorating the standards of living of the very people that voted for them. So can you talk a little bit about how the policies of the right wing don't align with the very support that brought them into power? Yeah, well, it's, it's a bit worse than that, actually. Your description is quite good, but it's worse than that in the following sense. Uh, because of the economic war already underway by 2013 April, when Maduro was elected, which is won narrowly by 1.5%, the opposition managed to get 7.4 million votes. Um, then, you know, three years later, one, sorry, one year later, or two years later, uh, December the 15th, when the National Assembly election takes place, the opposition increased their vote from 7.4 million to 7.7 million. That is to say, a lousy increase of 300,000. So there is nothing dramatic or heroic about that. That is to say, although there was a huge amount of discontent, and, you know, I would understand people if they say, my God, I cannot find anything. How can I be happy with the situation as it is? And if they express a protest vote, especially if the opposition said, I'm going to resolve the problems of, uh, of uh, supply or food and so on, then I might even consider voting for them. But actually, this did not happen. The reason why the opposition won as well as they did was because there was uh, two million Chavistas who actually abstained, did not vote. Now, if you were to take the situation as it is now, throughout 2016, the opposition by having control of the National Assembly, they could have done, you know, a huge amount of damage to the Bolivarian Revolution by taking initiatives, I don't know, promoting private enterprise, creating possibilities for employment, whatever. They didn't do anything. All they did was try to apply the worst aspect of neoliberal policies. You know, a couple of examples and, and right-wing policies. One example was the amnesty law. And the amnesty law was basically to get, you know, there is a, a, an analysis that I did uh, in the Huffington Post about that, which is they wanted to amnesty all political violent crimes and any crime committed by themselves from 1999 all the way up to that moment, which was absolutely unbelievable. And when you look at it, they even included, you know, fraud. They even included drug trafficking. They even included, you know, handling of explosives. They even included, you know, organizing attacks against the security forces of the states and the use of minuses in violent protests. They wanted to understand that. The population saw immediately through what this was going on, what exactly they were up to. Uh, so that failed. But then, worse than that, they tried a law on housing. You know, the government of Venezuela, particularly after Maduro, has, has built something like one point right now, 1.7 million houses, excellent houses for the poor, heavily subsidized prices, which is a fantastic social policy. 
um, that they tried to privatize. I haven't got time to go into details, but the objective consequences of what they were trying to do was to actually privatize, create a private market for housing speculation, real estate speculation, where very, very few people, as it happened in most capitalist countries, would benefit, and most of the people would actually be homeless. So the population realized that this was the case. And then after the failure of the 2016, where they had a majority, when they claimed they wanted to get rid of the government in six, in six months, then they went for the organization of American state, calling for every external uh, outfit to actually attack Venezuela, which doesn't do any, any good to them. And then worse than that, they actually have gone for these violence. Uh, which everybody sees, and you know, the polls indicate clearly everywhere that this is the case. The only people in the world that actually embellish what they do is the media. Not even governments around the world, with very few exceptions, actually say that what they're doing is nice. So therefore, if you were to take all of these factors into account, there is no question about it, that they are losing ground quite dramatically. And if you add one factor right now, which is called the Carnet de la Patria, which is the homeland card which the government gives to people who are going to receive benefits because social progress in Venezuela has not stopped despite the problems, that you are going to get also the benefits from the government, from the social programs and so on. The number of people so far registered is 15 million, which is half of the population. And if you add to those benefits the children and relatives that are going to benefit out of it, then you can see that the opposition is in real trouble. And this is the reason why they really refuse to go to contest the democracy, you know, or democratically, the National Constituent Assembly. And I think all of this indicates that it should be a good result. The problem is that between now and the 30th, they're going to call out all the stops using violence, lies, the media, the United States, anything, in order to try to stop it. But I would say that the National Constituent Assembly is unstoppable. That's a very interesting point. Now, I have to raise another one that I think uh, deserves to be discussed in, you know, in its totality. And for some people, I don't know why, but it, it might be a bit uncomfortable. And that is the role of the international and particularly the Western left when it comes to Venezuela. Because, you know, from my perspective and from the perspective of a lot of people, Venezuela is at the front lines of the fight against international uh, capital and uh, imperialism. And it has been been now for nearly 20 years. Venezuela is one of the prime targets of U.S. imperialism, but of course also of the ruling class in Europe, the financial elites uh, in, in Spain and also in the United States and elsewhere. So Venezuela is of central importance. However, we have seen a number of left organizations, be they in Venezuela, such as Marea Socialista, or in the United States, or in Britain, or elsewhere, that have at this moment of, uh, you know, in my opinion, critical defense of Venezuela, have instead offered up uh, attacks criticism, amplifying some of the uh, propaganda, uh, sometimes lodging valid criticism, sometimes overblowing them, sometimes parroting right-wing talking points. And this is, I think, very troubling, not because there shouldn't be differences of opinion on the left, but because of the role that Venezuela plays globally and the role that the left is supposed to play globally. Uh, but without getting too far into that, I'd like to get your analysis of some of the yep. left critiques of 
of the Venezuelan government and of the Bolivarian revolution and whether or not you think that in this moment that discussion is of relevance? Um, I think the term international left is a bit of a problem. And, and I, by this I mean the following. There is a small, very small minority and it's I'm not exaggerating. This is a significantly small minority within what you call the international left that actually takes this position and is mainly, not exclusively, but is mainly based in the United States. I know this because I went to the left forum and I could see them in action. And their criticism concentrate, I would say, mainly they take a sort of liberal stance to criticize the actions of the government, but at the same time, they demand the government be more socialist than it is, but whenever the government does take some steps, then they criticize it for having taken them, um, and so on. Um, Maria Socialista is the worst example. How can you defend the legacy of Chavez by voting in the plebiscites of the right wing that took place on the 16th of June? This is completely absurd and bizarre. And it seems to me that an organization that calls itself left-wing internationalist and does that is totally bankrupt. There is, from my perspective, which I take the perspective of the South, any organization that calls itself left and it does that is no good for me. I, have, I don't want to have anything to do with them because all they're doing, whatever their ultimate intentions or whatever their objective desires, the fact of the matter is that they end up helping the class enemy. Yes. This, in my view, should be the position. Even if Venezuela was not socialist, even if Venezuela was just a normal country in the sense that, you know, it's sort of some Keynesian redistribution and not more, and it happens to have oil. And as a result of that, it's under massive attack by the United States because the United States will go for their uh, oil regardless of who is in power. Even if that is the case, the position of the international left must be unconditional, absolute, and total support for the sovereignty of that nation, regardless of what they do internally. We can discuss what people do internally, and there is plenty of space for criticism, constructive criticism, constructive dialogue, to engage with them and so on, but to do what they do is disgusting in my view. And let me explain what I mean by them being a small minority. The Sao Paulo Forum, which is the Western left, because it's in Latin America, it's in the Western Hemisphere, the Sao Paulo Forum has just issued various statements regarding support for President Lula, but also for the Constituent Assembly, but also, you know, against uh, imperialist interference in the internal affairs of Venezuela, and they issue a document saying that what we're facing now in the region, in the whole continent, is the battle for Venezuela. That's exactly the right position. Who are they? This is 100 political parties, or more than 100 political parties, and more than 300 social organizations, including national, trade union federations, social organizations, indigenous groups, and so on. Um, among the political parties, we count the Workers' Party, the FMLN from El Salvador, the FSLN from Nicaragua, uh, the PSUV from Venezuela, uh, the MAS from Bolivia, and so on. Together, this organization, I cannot mention them all because it will be too long. Together, this organization has 
I would say in the region of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of members. And their electoral appeal ranges in the millions. The Workers' Party on its own commands in the 2014 election 54 million votes. So the international left is in the Sao Paulo Forum, and they make their position totally clear. If you take the matter to Europe, there is the party of the left in Europe that includes, you know, organizations such as Podemos, that includes people like Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France, that includes organizations such as The Link in Germany, that includes, you know, the left bloc and the Communist Party of Portugal, who are in the government of Portugal at the moment. All of these organizations, all of them have support, which ranges from 5% to 16 to 20%. All of them have no problem in taking the stance, which is we have to defend the, so, the sovereignty of Venezuela unconditionally and reject completely, you know, what the United States and others are trying to do to it by overthrowing this government. Mm -hmm. It is none of the business of anybody else but to Venezuelans to decide their own self-determination, which is what the, if you measure in terms of votes, these organizations, it's again, we are talking about millions. So it is basically focused in very little places, very little organization. What do they have? What do they command? What is their influence? You know, what they're able to mobilize in the world to support us. They're not able to mobilize anything against that except opinions. They're not able to support anything because they're very insignificant. And the real left is somewhere else. You're 100% right, and I really appreciate that forceful analysis there, because you, because sometimes, especially those of us who live in the United States and who work in uh, the you know alternative media of the left, you know socialist, uh, anti-imperialist uh, circles and media, uh, sometimes we get a little bit insular and uh, think that some of our internal conflicts and internal disagreements are uh, more generalized than they really are. So I really do appreciate that analysis because you're absolutely right. I mean, really, the international left is almost uh, unanimous in, in, in defense of Venezuela, and it is a relatively small segment of the left, particularly in the United States, that takes this sort of, uh, you know, uh, socialist party as, quote-unquote, authoritarian line, which is, of course, uh, somewhat uh, reductionistic, simplistic, and dare I say, idiotic. But uh, be that Tell as... Tell me one comment on that, if, yeah, if you may. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, there is there been a sort of debate in you know a website which is called Venezuela Analysis, which is currently very good material. Uh, possibly you know you know it. Uh, Venezuela uh, Analysis is Venezuela Analysis. Yeah. Um, there's been a sort of interesting discussion. Some people are discussing. Some people are you know discuss. We defend Venezuela and we defend Maduro, but we think it's Kerenki, which is completely ridiculous. But at least they're taking the position of defense. There are others who are much worse. However, there recently there was an article by Gregory Wilker. I'm sorry if I use this media to publicize his article. I think it's an excellent <laughs> No, Greg is, Greg is a good guy. I know him. It's a great article. Yeah. And it's called Time for the International Left. The International Left is in commerce to take a stand on Venezuela. I think he gets it absolutely right. He says there are criticism, there are problems. You know, who doesn't make mistakes with making a revolution? everybody, from Lenin all the way to Maduro. It's absolutely nobody has not made mistakes ever. So from that point of view, this is an excellent position. Um, I want to say that actually I requested formally by, by writing to them, I asked the Jacobin to actually publish this. And the reason why I asked them is because they, 
published an article by a guy called Mike Gonzalez, who presented the helicopter terrorist attack. You can read the article. Presented the helicopter terrorist attack that took place against the Ministry of Interior and against the Supreme Court recently, as we know, as part of the internal factional fight within Chavismo. This is absolutely outrageous. In other words, not only some of these people are completely uninformed, they don't really know what is going on, they even say nonsense, and it puts them in a very bad light. So I said to the gentleman, I said, look, the best spirit of having discussions, you know, you are entitled to publish anything you want, but don't you think you should publish this one as well so that people actually have an alternative view that they can think about and make their own decisions? I think it would be nice that if they did it. Yes, well, um, without getting into any specifics and without starting a flame war here, uh, I do think that you're 100% correct. And again, it's it's I, I, I believe it's the height of irresponsibility on the left to be uh, attacking Venezuela at the time when the international forces of imperialism are also attacking Venezuela. Critique is one thing, but the undermining of the government and the undermining of the confidence of people who should be on the front lines defending uh, the, you know, the, the Venezuelan, the Venezuelan people, but the Bolivarian revolution itself. I think this is, um, I don't necessarily want to say it's unforgivable, but it's an incredible uh, slap in the face to uh, a lot of the people who have dedicated their lives to building socialism in Venezuela. And one of the things that I think is so often ignored and one of, and, and what I observed when I was there and others who have been there as well can talk about that Venezuela is not merely some, you know, socialist top down, uh, you know, bureaucratic Democratic Party run country. There is an entire uh, interlocking web of grassroots organizations, people's assemblies, indigenous groups, and agricultural cooperatives, and many, 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 many other uh, uh, institutions of grassroots democracy that exist from the bottom up in Venezuela that kind of uh, have this sort of interplay with the government, sometimes supporting, sometimes disagreeing, but always standing in solidarity. This aspect of the Bolivarian process, and it is a process, not simply a revolution, this aspect of it is so often ignored, and I think that's uh, to, the, to the detriment of the analysis, because with... Uh, leaving that out of the analysis of Venezuela is to leave out a fundamental element of what Bolivarian revolution really is. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I mean, who was it to imagine? I've been in politics a long time, and, you know, I participated in all sorts of revolutionary things in my time. And I would never imagine that Simon Bolivar was going to become the iconic symbol of the social revolution in any Latin American country. And the reason why it is, there are elements within it that you can actually extrapolate and make it so. The reason is because of somebody called Hugo Chavez, who actually turned this into this figure. The legitimacy of the struggle for national independence in order to be able to carry out its logical consequences must be a social revolution. That's what he's done. And, you know, before, Simón Bolívar was just an emblem. Now he's living in the hearts and the minds of all those who mobilize. But this is the point I want to make about exactly what you say. What is being overlooked regarding the National Constituent Assembly, you know, some people say, well, it's it's a clever maneuver to try to outflank the opposition. It is a good intention to actually mobilize the masses and try to defeat them. I think it's more than that. Literally, 
there are thousands, and this is not exaggeration, this is not a rhetorical point, this is really true. There are literally thousands and thousands of meetings every single day, everywhere in Venezuela, yeah. where all these organizations discuss, sorry, meet, organize assemblies to discuss what they want to do regarding A, B, C, all the way to Z, when they actually have the constituent assembly which is empowering them. That's absolutely extraordinary. There is the amount of enthusiasm that this has generated, the, the level of political mobilization, you know, when the masses erupt into the political arena by their millions is that there is a revolution. Well, this revolution actually has energized what is already there uh, to, to a level with, you know, the, the National Constitutional Assembly has energized them to a level that hasn't been seen before with the level of interest that there is now. The, Significant thing is this, the number of youth and women that are part of this movement is absolutely unbelievable. They are leaders at the grassroots levels, and when you listen to them, the level of politicization that they are actually able to show is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. You know, it sort of makes me, it makes me really emotional when I think about this. This is, cannot be overlooked. This is a real revolution. It's fighting for its life, and it's mobilizing everything it has which is these millions of people to defend itself. Absolutely. And one thing I think some people uh, miss as well is that the forces that are involved in these grassroots mobilizations, these are not simply, you know, fights for increased living standards. I, I'll give you one example. I went to a small fishing village um, uh, and, and a different island where you had these various, uh, you know, fishing communities. And in speaking with some of the fishermen there, it was I, I was truly blown away by the fact that all of their all of the talk uh, was not not simply centered around, you know, well, the government needs to help us to make more money and to make more profit and to catch more fish. They were just as much talking about not only income, but they were talking about things like preserving the natural habitat of the oceans, preserving the ecosystem, making sure that it's sustainable, the kind of development that they're moving towards. These kinds of conversations you don't hear in capitalist industries like, uh, you know, the fishing industry in the United States, for example. Similarly, you see uh, Afro-Venezuelan voices being centered, indigenous voices being centered. You see a lot of these traditionally marginalized groups, even groups that are often marginalized within socialist circles, finding themselves being centered and becoming leaders of a lot of these grassroots movements. And I think this is also something that should hopefully at least broaden and round out the picture that people have of what the Bolivarian Revolution is truly about. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I don't want to advise anybody as to what to do because it's, it's arrogant. But my line is, forget the manual, you know, just see what is going on in reality and then draw your conclusions out of that, even though you have a socialist framework. Revolutions are living processes. They take place in the most peculiar ways. Who is going to imagine that an indigenous guy who used to, you know, look after llamas when he was a young kid, who never finished, you know, secondary school, uh, never went to university, was going to lead the social revolution of Bolivia with a Spanish which is not perfect because his first language is Aymara, Evo Morales. That's exactly what we're talking about. We in Latin America, and I imagine any place, will be exactly like this. The manuals are the manuals which are a guide to allow us to understand what is going on, not to use as matrices 
that if the phenomenon, which is very rich, doesn't fit into the manual, then it must be dismissed. This is totally ridiculous. It's fossilized ideology, and it's not good for anybody. Absolutely. It's a living, breathing thing, and uh, that's what we're all here for. We're, we're, we're here for... Um... We're not here for revolution as some kind of, uh, you know, stylistic choice. We're here for revolution to transform society, and that's what's happening in Venezuela. Like it or not, uh, mistakes or not, that's what's happening in Venezuela, and it's about time that everybody understood the importance of defending it and defending it as strongly and forcefully as we can. Yeah, no, absolutely. Can I just say that in, you know, what happens, well, the future holds for the Venezuelan revolution or the Bolivarian Revolution. I think this is, I don't want to engage in predictions because there's no scientific, but it looks like the opposition, by all their actions, they're running away from reality, they're using violence. If they had enough support, they would go for something else. And the very fact that they're going for violence in very small places, horrible violence, media, and the United States is a clear indication who is the real paymaster. Um, the issue seems to me is this. Once the result of the Constituent Assembly takes place, we have to, all of us, the international, the one international that we have been talking about, including everybody else who wants to be part of it, can join and should join to organize everything they can to defend it. Because once it takes place, the attack is likely to intensify with all sorts of horrible, nasty stories. And we have to be prepared for the 31st of July, once we know the results of the election. And this is absolutely key. And in order for us to be able to do this, we have to understand not only the politics that we have discussed uh, right now, but also the mechanics, the constitutionality, the legality of it. And in, us, in order for, for us to help everybody understand that process, uh, we actually produce a very interesting, very clear concise briefing of what the National Constituent Assembly in Venezuela is all about, which is in our website. I think people should use it because it's very helpful and it tells you every detail, what the constitutional articles are, 347, 348, 349 and so on, and then how many people are going to be elected by who, what are the basis and so on and so forth. It is quite important that we are equipped with all of this material but also the politics of it, so that we're able to rebut and counteract the media lies that are going to come inevitably after the results. No doubt, uh, a lot more, a lot more to come on the Venezuela front. Hopefully, everybody's paying attention and being prepared to act as uh, forcefully as we can. Francisco Dominguez, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio again, listeners. You should be following his work. Uh, Francisco is a Latin American Studies professor at Middlesex University in the UK. He's also the National Secretary of the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign. Go to the website VenezuelaSolidarity.co.uk. Francisco, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Oh, thanks for having me, and it was a pleasure to uh, contribute. Listeners, thank you as always, and I will chat with you again next week.